Um, all the videos and audio files of past Sundays are all on our website. You can go there and listen to audio. You can go there and watch past weeks of videos and so on. They're all there. All right. When I became senior pastor, when I took over from my friend Robert Rob in uh, summer of 2010, I thought, where can I start? Well, I preached a series then of four sermons reflecting the four points of the four-square gospel of Jesus, which is what Elim is called, Elim four-square gospel alliance, four subjects of Jesus, that he's saviour, that he's healer, that he's baptiser with the Holy Spirit, and that he's coming king, is the way that Elim used to say it, but I, I would say that he's the king who's coming. He's not waiting to be king, he is king, but he's coming to complete his kingdom. I felt it was right that in my last sermons as senior pastor here, I should return to Jesus himself, not that I've gone away far away from him, I hope. But I want to, to use these three sermons to illustrate how we know and relate to Jesus the Lord and grow in doing so. So the three that I chose were Jesus our Saviour, Jesus our King, and Jesus our Master. We dealt firstly with Jesus being a Saviour who lived and died and rose again for us, for our forgiveness and freedom. He's restored us to the Father. He saved us, is saving us, and will save us, finally. We then dealt with Jesus being our King and with our being his subjects and servants and stewards and soldiers. Why did I choose that order? Because I think there's an order in Scripture. I think there's a pattern, a flow here. There is development. They can perhaps be identified with the start of being a Christian, the, the middle phase of, of, of coming to some maturity and, and, and so on, and then the later stages of growing as a Christian. Let me show that to you in 1 John chapter 2. I'm writing to you little children because you, your sins have been forgiven through his name. Starters. You know you're forgiven. I write to you fathers because you know who... Him who is from the beginning. John doesn't put them in the order I'm talking about. Them, right? I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. But then he repeats it for emphasis. I have written to you children because you know the Father. I've written to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. That lives and remains. You know, it's, it's being at home. And you have overcome the evil one. Now we can presume that young men and fathers here also includes young women and mothers, for there are no gender-specific instructions here. And my way of interpreting the scripture is that the Bible is gender-inclusive, not gender-neutral. That's a different issue. It's gender-inclusive, except where it is gender-specific. The newest or youngest Christian should know and understand they are loved and forgiven by God through Jesus their Savior, and that God is their father. They should know that, feel it, experience it. They grow on to become strong in the Lord. They, as they faithfully and obey and serve him, the word of God lives and remains in them. They serve their king. They're fighting the good fight of faith as soldiers of Christ. That's a good way to be, isn't it? Yeah. But there's a further stage of maturity for Christians. John only uses one phrase, knowing him who is from the beginning. That's the language John uses in his gospel and again in this letter. He's referring to Jesus, the eternal son of the eternal father. That's how he starts 
John chapter 1 in the gospel. That's how he starts John 1, John chapter 1, this letter. In the beginning. He was in the beginning. He's in the beginning. You know him who is from the beginning. These fathers and mothers live and speak not just from thorough knowledge of Scripture, but from knowing the Lord himself. They obey him from love, devotion, and reverence. Such people become fathers and mothers to others. Now I'm going to share some of my own experiences with you, because I can. (laughs) This is my last time to do so. I was raised in a Pentecostal church in Oldbury, West Midlands. And yes, I did have the accent then. In fact, even I could speak the dialect then. It started almost 100 years ago when Edward Jeffries, son of Stephen Jeffries, nephew of George Jeffries, who was the founder of Elim Foursquare Gospel Alliance. Edward Jeffries ran crusades in the West Midlands in the late 1920s. And a church was gathered in Oldbury in 1929. Edward Jeffries was not an Elim minister, but led a team that was called Bethel Evangelistic Society. So a church which was going to be called Bethel was founded in a, a... in Albury. And my great-grandfather, Richard Lewis, was among the first group of Elim ministers in the 1920s. That's him down in the bottom there, Richard Lewis. But by 1930, and I'm not sure of the history here, by 1930 he was working with Edward Jeffries and Bethel, and he was brought over from South Wales to pastor the church in Albury. Other members of his family joined him there. This was the, the Depression, remember, the 1930s. So I grew up in a Pentecostal church in the West Midlands with an extended Welsh community and family around me. Bethel, that's my great-granddad, Richard Lewis. Bethel was an independent Pentecostal church. Richard Lewis, and this is, this is the church, 1930s. See, kind of wooden frame building, white panels. Richard Lewis died before I was born, but the chapel that he built was my church on Sunday until 1970, when a new building just around the corner replaced it. And of the pastors of Bethel, as when I, I knew as I grew up, the first was an excellent man from Elam called John Hunt. Then someone from the Salvation Army who actually got the building program started to move around the corner. And then two from Assemblies of God. And because I was being pastored by someone from Assemblies of God, when the Lord called me to faith and then to be a preacher and teacher at the age of 18, I went to the Assemblies of God Bible College at Mattersea, which looked exactly like that when I was there. I was 18, and I was reading my Bible and books of theology like a hard-working laborer scoffs down his evening meal. Two of the lecturers at the Bible College were old men. I mean, really old. They'd been young men at the start of the 20th century, young men during this First World War. They were first-generation Assemblies of God leaders. One was a founder of that network of churches, John Carter, then in his 90s. He had rooms on the college premises and lectured on a number of topics, including the books of Isaiah and Acts. We'd already had some lectures with John Carter, which were excellent material, but delivered by an elderly man at his own pace, you know, and I was a young man in a hurry to get on. (laughs) When one day another man from that first generation of British Pentecostals was introduced to us, 
to take us through Jeremiah and the Minor Prophets, and his name was Elisha Thompson. So in the manner of those times and the way I remember them, let me refer to them as Brother Carter and Brother Thompson. So Brother Thompson was due that morning. We gathered in the college main hall, which is that window here on the right. That's, that's the, the library in the main hall. And Brother Thompson came in with a very battered big Bible, which I wondered whether it was as old as him. And as far as I could see, he didn't have any notes. So I thought, why, is he going to make it up? No, he just knew it. And he came in like this, and he put his Bible down. And he greeted us. And then he said, good morning, and so on. And then he said, uh, uh, now we'll have a word of prayer. And he leaned down, put his hands on his Bible like this. And the first two words he said broke my heart. He began his prayer, loving master. I heard the rest of his prayer in which he called us his young friends and asked for the Holy Spirit to come and help him and us. But those first two words were ringing in my heart and my head and I was trying not to weep. And I was trying not to say out loud what was like going on in my head. Lord Jesus, this man really knows you. Like, really? Well, the prayer ended and the lecture proceeded. But at the end, I skipped lunch and I walked in the grounds. I prayed and wept and I confessed my stubbornness and prejudice against this earlier generation of truly godly people. Something changed in me that day. I found out when I was saying to the Lord, I wanted to become like Brother Thompson and Brother Carter. I wanted to tell Jesus as they did. So the next time I was listening to Brother Carter, I realized, and, and Brother Thompson, and others who came who were from an early generation than me, I realized this. If I asked them open questions about their life, about their experiences, there was gold to be had. So I did the same with a number of the lecturers. Didn't interrupt them, but if it, when he says any questions, any questions, I say, can we ask you a question outside of what you've shared? Can I ask you about yourself and how you became a Christian and how you came into leadership? Wonderful stories we heard from those people. I wanted not only to hear about their successes, but about their trials and difficulties, how they'd endured in faith and obedience to Jesus. And you see, I could get theology from books, but I could not get that from anywhere else. It's called wisdom. Faith tested. Experience producing wisdom. So some weeks on, it was my turn to preach at the Bible College morning service. It was called Preaching on the Block. I don't know why on the block. Your head was on the block. As I don't know. <laughs> Every weekday, Monday to Friday, one of us would have to preach, and then weekends, some of us were sent out to preach. I was sent out almost every weekend to somewhere up in Yorkshire, Lancashire, Northumberland to preach, because this was Mattis in Doncaster. I'd been struck by some words of Paul in one of the epistles, and I just preached through those. And at the lunchtime that day, I was handed a small envelope. What's this for? Someone giving me money? No, it wasn't that. It was a handwritten invitation from Brother Carter to join him for tea in his room that afternoon. So I went to his rooms at the appointed time, and though I don't drink tea, I did that day. He thanked me for the sermon. 
encouraged me to continue handling scriptures just as I had in that straightforward way, honoring the authority of God's word. And he gave me some points and advice, and then he prayed for me. And I have never forgotten that meeting. When I finished Bible college, still aged only 20, I went to Full Gospel Hall and Assemblies of God Church in East Ham, where a few years on I met Carol. Thank you. Okay, I'm not going to sing. I spent a year as a part-supported assistant pastor and was sent out to do some pastoral visits. One of the people I was sent to was a Mrs. Gibson. An elderly widow, she was shut in, she couldn't get outdoors. Family brought her supplies, but she lived alone in what had been the family home. So I went to Mrs. Gibson's and introduced myself as the, the, the assistant pastor for that time and uh, sat down with her at a kitchen table. And she made some tea, of course. And then she took out a little notebook and a pencil and she, 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 she quizzed me. She asked me my name and she wrote it down. And some details about me, and she wrote those down. And, and then she asked me this question, how can I pray for you now every day, David? I was taken aback. I just walked into a home. I was supposed to talk with her and pray with her and do the pastor thing. But she was offering to pray for me, not just then, but every day. She explained she had this notebook, which was almost now full of names and notes. And when she got up in the morning, she'd make a cup of tea, begin to pray through a little book for person after person. Then she'd stop and have some breakfast and then go on again. She stopped to have another cup of tea or to make a lunch and then go on again. She grew tired, she had a nap. And through the whole day until the notebook was finished, she prayed, person after person. Having heard her account of that everyday life, she lived day after day after day. I hardly dared to pray for her, but I gave it a shot. Did my best throw, you know. But then she prayed for me, and oh my goodness, she prayed for me. Very simply, just like Brother Thompson, but I felt Jesus in the room. When I got away from Mrs. Gibson's, I went and sat in my car and wept, just as I had at Majesty just a few years before. There were other people of that generation who made their impression upon me in my early 20s, including a man who was one of the first Pentecostal missionaries in the 1920s to Congo, in Africa, what was then called Congo. His name was WFP, commonly known as Willie Burton. And he came and he preached, and I was leading worship that day. And I, 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 because I was like, you know, a young guy in the church, I was just serving, I was there to help. And, and uh, so I, I said, I, I said I'll, I'll walk Mr. Burton to his car, you know. So I walked Mr. Burton to his car, and as we went, he put his hand on his, my shoulder, and he, he thanked me for the way I'd led worship that day. And then he said some more things to me, and he, which were really prophetic. And then he shook my hand and got in the car and drove away. Again, I've never forgotten that conversation. Here then is my scripture for today. I write or have written to you, fathers including mothers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Those people were fathers and mothers in the Israel of God. They were truly mature Christians. They were wise and kind and fatherly or motherly. And the one thing I sensed I identified in each of them was that they really knew Jesus. Personally. Intimately. A conversation with them, a prayer offered by them, could bring his presence near.
we all need to know and relate to Jesus as Savior, and that never stops, and as King, and that never stops either. But there, that is not the end of growth and maturity. So this time I want to think about Jesus being our master. I'll use that word. I include words like teacher and rabbi and even friend. We'll get to those. And our being his followers and friends. Jesus was known to his disciples as master, teacher, lord, or rabboni, which is a familiar way of saying teacher, my teacher, my teacher. An old man called Elisha Thompson calling Jesus his loving master changed my heart. Gave me a hunger. This language of Jesus being our master always reminds me of the law of the servant or slave in Exodus 21. Under the ways of those times, a servant, someone had been paid for to, to work six years of work. After six years, they were free to go. But he might choose to stay, particularly if he'd gained a wife and family during those years with his master. Don't ask me to support the idea of slavery because... because, because by, by the work of Christians, we overthrew slavery in, the, in most of the world today. So here's what the servant had to say. If he didn't want to leave and he wanted to stay, this was his confession. Exodus 21, verse 5. I love my master and my wife and children. I do not want to go free. And when Brother Thompson called Jesus his loving master, he was saying Jesus loved him, but he was also confessing that he loved Jesus as his master too. You see, we are his disciples following him, helping others to follow him. It all comes back to him and our relationship of faith and love and obedience towards him. And being a disciple is a daily, even hourly choice. If, you don't, if you're not aware of making decisions as a disciple of Jesus, then you've forgotten to be a disciple. Being a disciple is a daily choice because we're following Jesus as our model, example. We're following him. Matthew 10, 24, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. In other words, as you follow Jesus as a disciple, you learn to become more like Jesus. You learn his ways. You learn to do what he would do. In fact, Back in the 70s, anybody remember this? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Anybody remember those? Okay. How can we know what Jesus would do? Well, we can't make it up. That would be foolish. We firstly have to get to know him through the Gospels. See what he is. In other words, the first thing we need to do is what did, what did Jesus do? Before we figure out what would Jesus do, let's look at what did Jesus do. Get the authentic Jesus. See the way he treats women. See the way he treats children. See the way he treats, treats the sick and the needy. Now we're getting somewhere. Some people choose to follow a Jesus of their own imagination. Oh, I imagine Jesus to be like this. Well, you're very welcome to, but you haven't got it right. Because they're not following the Jesus of Nazareth as reported to us in the inspired scriptures. I'm still taken aback sometimes when I read the gospel. Jesus said that? Jesus did that? Then we get to know him by connecting, communicating and following him through life, every day, even hour by hour. We're to follow him, learn from him, be 
his disciples. Back to 1 John again. I'm going to read a, this comes before what we read earlier. I'm going to read the longer passage, but I've just highlighted this. By this we can be sure that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. If anyone says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he's a liar. I didn't say that. John said that. Scripture says that. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone keeps his word, the love of God has been truly perfected in him. By this, we know that we're in him. Whoever claims to live, remain in him, must walk as Jesus walked. You walk as Jesus walked. You follow him. And then thirdly, knowing Jesus as friend or elder brother. I obey Jesus as king because his word is law and I'm his subject. But I can grow to obey Jesus and keep his commandments simply because I love him. I'm not, I'm not under a weight of law, but I'm keeping his law, I'm keeping his commandments simply because I love him. After all, God's law may be stated in just two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says the third, love your fellow Christian as I have loved you. So Jesus says the third. It's, he called it the new commandment. The first two are good. Here's another one. What does that servant say in Exodus 21? I love my master, I do not want to go free. So the mature Christian says, I love Jesus, I would not want to displease him in any way or dishonor him in any way. I want to do, I really want to do what glorifies him. This is how Jesus puts it to the disciples in John 14. This is part of the, the upper room discourse before Jesus is betrayed and crucified. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice, if you love me. Keeping his commandments is the evidence of love. Obedience, yes. But you can obey out of fear, you can obey out of, well, it says it, so I'm supposed to do it. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And reveal myself to him. There's a promise. He'll reveal himself to you. You think you know Jesus? There's more of him to know. I will love him and reveal myself to him. That's not becoming a Christian. This is down the road from having become a Christian. You are following him and he's revealing himself to you. John says this is the evidence that we know and love him, that we keep his commandments. His disciple called Jesus Master, Teacher, Lord. But going on from the verses we just looked at, in the next chapter, John 15, still passed part of the upper room discourse, Jesus being to disciples hours before he's betrayed. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will remain in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love 
one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. He's already given them the new commandment. He's repeating it here. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. What? He's upping the game. I, I don't want to call you servants. I want to call you friends. For a servant does not understand what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Because everything I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. And just a reminder from him again, you didn't choose me. Don't think when you get up a bit more and you get mature and you, you get strong and the word of God lives in you and, and you're overcoming the enemy that you think you're a good guy. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit will remain. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Jesus invites us to come through being his servants to being his friends. We used to sing it quite often here, didn't we? I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. I'm not sure we thought much about those verses in John when we were singing it. We should have done. Jesus calls us into being friends. He calls us and draws us. But it costs us something. Trust. Obedience. Time. Testing. Endurance. If I let me just give you these headlines. What produces such Christian maturity? These fathers and mothers kind of characters. What produces people like that? Faith. Trusting the Lord Jesus. Day after day. Year after year. Experience after experience. Good times, bad times. Obedience, obeying the Lord, keeping his commandments. Not shrugging some off and saying, well, I don't like that one so much. Learning to love his law because you love God. Obedience. Love, love the Lord your God with all you have, with all you are. Hardship, trials. Great Christians have dealt with disappointments, with disease, with disasters, and even death. Death of others and finally their own death. And they overcome through trusting in Jesus, laying it all at his feet as we sang earlier. And then time. There is no such thing as instant Christian maturity. Time has to pass. Life has to be experienced and handled with faith and obedience towards the Lord Jesus. Here's one of my sayings. Growing older is inevitable Growing up into him is optional. <clears throat> As I come towards my close, I want to go to Philippians 3. One of, some of the letters that Paul wrote were written when he was under house arrest in Rome. The letters to the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, letter to Philemon, and to Timothy. After many years of serving the Lord Jesus, Paul could no longer travel, couldn't visit his friends and the churches, couldn't preach and teach other than to the people who came to him there. He knows that he'll be executed soon by the Roman authorities, especially when he writes to Timothy. He's anticipating that's going to happen. But he still had an ambition. Now you think, what's a man in house arrest got as an ambition? What's he going to do with his time? Listen to his words. and I'm just going to highlight some phrases as I go through. It's a, not, it's a few verses, but I'm going to put some highlights up there. Philippians 3, verse 7. <clears throat> But whatever was gained to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, 
I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That's a polite word. The word there in Greek is, means dung. I consider them dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness from the law, just keeping the rules, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this. Paul is not saying, he's not saying I'm there, guys. Or that I have already been made perfect, which means mature. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, he says it again, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting is what is, what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize of God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. Come in, children, please. Come and take your seats, don't worry. Come on through. Then he says this, all of us who are mature should embrace this point of view. And if you think differently about some issue, God will reveal this to you as well. He means God will sort you out. That's what he means. Nevertheless, we must live up to what we have already attained. I wouldn't wish to compare myself with Paul, but I will seek to learn from him and from the scripture that came to, through him by the Holy Spirit. Paul is not saying, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get more done. He's not talking about what people generally call ministry. He suffered the loss of all those things. He's under house arrest, waiting trial and death. But he has got a burning ambition, which is this, to press on to know Jesus better. Here's a quote that's often attributed to Tim Keller, the great New York preacher. But I found it's actually earlier than that. It comes from Corrie Ten Boom, the, the great uh, uh, Dutch uh, Dutch woman and uh, writer. You can never learn that Jesus is all you need until Christ is all you have. Sorry, Tim Keller makes it Jesus all you need. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. We sing aspirational songs. Christ alone, cornerstone. All, everything I need is in you. But there'll be a point in our lives when we don't have anything else but him. So here's my, coming into my closing question. What do you have and what do you do when roles and responsibilities come to an end? Whether that's because of disease, infirmity, retirement, real old age. I'm not really old yet, you know. Well, if you think about it, what you have is what matters. Relationships. Relationships. Firstly, with Jesus himself. Primarily, with Jesus himself. You see, you're told to love God with all you have. You don't, you don't love your family with all you have. You don't you love your neighbor with all you have. You love your neighbor, you love yourself. But you love God with all you've got. Then with, then with family and with friends and with brothers and sisters and the Lord and then with, with other people around us. And for some of us as well, 
with, with kind of sons and daughters, people we mentor, people we have a care towards, people like those guys who took me aside and had a word with me and prayed with me, you know, because there was a fatherly interest in me, just for a few moments. But you can develop that as a heart towards people. We have relationships. No more roles, no responsibilities. Don't have to get up in the morning and have a big to-do list. But I can build on relationships and treasure them. So Paul applied his time and energy under house arrest to press on to know the Lord better than ever. And he talked with those who would come and he wrote to those he couldn't see and he prayed for, the, for everybody he knew every day, like Mrs. Gibson. We know that from his letters. That was his lifestyle. What will I do from now on in retirement? Learn from Paul's example. Seek to grow up in Jesus and not just grow old. And to build on relationships. Now I'm not lecturing you to become mature in Jesus this week, this month, this year. Maybe not even this decade. Let me give those scriptures to you again then. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of these things. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, even the good stuff, you've got to let it down at some point in time. Let it become good history. And if it's bad history, let it become bad history. And press on. Straining to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize of God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. All of us who mature should embrace this point of view. And if you think differently about it, God will reveal it to you. Nevertheless, we must live up to what we have attained. So here's my final headlines. Whatever you've attained to, live up to. If you're a new Christian, live in the love and forgiveness of God through Jesus your Savior. Don't be... Moved away from the grace of God for one moment. No, God loves you through Jesus. Put his son on the cross for you. Then if you've got some space to grow, you're beginning to tackle scripture and the word of God's beginning to live in you, you can grow strong. You can overcome the world, the flesh and the devil as you serve Jesus, your king. You can be bold. You can have adventures of faith in his name. Lay hands on the sick, even. It's all good stuff. You need to do, you need to be built up in faith to do those things, and God's word is what builds you up in faith. But understand this that even when you're energetic and obedient and effective in following Jesus, the maturity is still ahead of you. The real maturity is still ahead of you, and is to be pursued over time. But live at the level you've come to. Don't backtrack, don't back down, don't get diverted, don't sell out. Live for what lasts. Take hold of what you can never lose, eternal life in Christ Jesus. Live for a purpose that's bigger and longer lasting than just this lifespan, let alone your career, let alone your job, let alone raising the family at that particular time. Live for something that lasts forever. Aspire to grow up in him in every way, following Jesus, learning to become like him. Make that your ambition and goal above everything else. And spend your life and all you have for the greatest treasure, the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. I appreciate that. Thank you. Let's pray together.
Jesus, our Saviour and Lord, we thank you and praise you for your grace towards us, becoming our Saviour. We honour you as our King. We bow before you to yield our lives to you, to surrender to as subjects to a loving King. But Lord, you call us further, beyond even those wild days of adventure, as, as brave souls, men and women, we, we may be having our adventures of faith where, where we could be planting churches, we could be preaching the gospel, we could be in all sorts of things where we're in those times and seasons when we're energetic and fruitful for you. But that is not final fruitfulness and maturity. For there will come a time when any one of us will either have that taken away from us or must lay it down. And then, just as Paul, we can set our hearts Undoing one thing with all our hearts, knowing you. So we pray now as we break bread, we remember you together. Amen. Let me just say again, if you're not yet a Christian, today's a good day to start, folks. If you've not yet surrendered yourself to Jesus, who saved you through the cross.